This is the Regenerative Real Estate Podcast. Revitalizing the world together. Hi, everybody. This is Neil Collins. I'm the host of the Regenerative Real Estate Podcast, and I'm joined today by somebody that I told him earlier, I've been wanting to have this conversation for several years now. It's Ross Chapin of Ross Chapin Architects. It was the, the father that has coined the term pocket neighborhoods, uh, but he is a, a pronounced and an acclaimed architect out of the Seattle area that it sounds like he's done everything from custom homes to pocket neighborhoods, which we will be getting more into to larger subdivision uh, work, but Ross, thank you so much for coming on. This is truly a, a pleasure, and and you're such a fascinating human being that I I do think that a lot of listeners are going to get as much pleasure out of it as I will. So thank you, uh, ha, ha. Uh, Neil. I'm I'm honored to be part of this conversation, and I've uh, been enjoying uh, the lively conversations that we've had. Um, not enough, and this will add to it. And it's just a bonus that we uh, have others listening into our conversation. So I look forward to it. See where yes, it thank you. And, and what I want to tell listeners getting into this is that we're going to be talking about pocket neighborhoods because I think that's how you're best known throughout the world. And for those that aren't familiar, I would highly suggest you press pause and pull up your smartphone or your computer and Google Ross Chapin's name in pocket neighborhoods next to it and look at the images. Because what I, what I think is very different is the way that Ross has done architecture in, in created communities. And it's good to have that mental image in your head going into this conversation because what we're not doing is we're talking, we're not talking with an architect that builds a building and that's it and then he puts it down and, and walks away. Uh, it's a very different experience. And so if you can at least know this is what pocket neighborhoods are going into it, we will jump into, we will evolve into that as we go. But I first wanna ask you, Russ, I was able to do a lot of sleuthing on the internet and I see that you grew up in Northern Minnesota outside of St. Paul in a house that your grandparents built at the turn of the century. And I can picture it in my head because I read that it had a wraparound porch and leaded glass windows. Is it as idyllic as, as I'm thinking? Uh, what, what was that like? Yeah, I, I think it may be. Um, it, it's not a grand house. It's actually fairly humble. But uh, in about 1894, um, my grandparents and a whole bunch of their friends uh, who had lived in St. Paul, uh, the streetcar lines were just beginning to come out from uh, St. Paul out to White Bear Lake, which was kind of like in Portland going out to Gresham or beyond. Um, it is maybe a 15 mile um, uh, train that gets off at the depot. And uh, back in the 1890s, uh, the um, image that people had was, let's, let's have a, a little cottage at the lake and we can work in town. And during the summers, our family can be out there and take the train into work. Uh, what a concept. 
And so the little, little tiny shed cottage that was built in the 1890s then made way to a, um, a house that was about 1,500 square feet. And it had a big wraparound porch. It was shingle. It was a bungalow. In fact, that was the name of the house, the bungalow. Mm -hmm. And this was before any of the streets had numbers. And so all of the houses had names. And uh, you know, there's the Edgewood and the bungalow. And the, uh, there's a little backyard cottage um, uh, at, on the property. And in the Victorian times, the, um, uh, there's a little uh, creek that came alongside. So the house was overlooking a ravine with a creek that went out to a lake. Here in Minnesota, we're all on a lake, lakes everywhere. So yeah, it's idyllic that way. Interesting, the, the house in the back, um, um, the, the um, Victorian name for a, a, a sore back, a crick in the back, is called lumbago. And so the house, the little cottage name is Lumbago. And uh, at the that. house back in the, uh, it was made in 1903. And um, of course, this was before electricity and telephones uh, and everything else that we have now. And the house had the only piano in the neighborhood. And so the teenagers, and I'm hearing this from my grandmother because she was a teenager there. Uh, would get together around, uh, they'd move the, the big piano out to the porch and they would sing around the piano. Can you imagine that? Friends gathering to sing around the piano. Um, and when I grew up, I was, uh, the porch was the center of our life uh, during the summers. And all the adults, we'd eat out there and then the adults would have these lingering conversations that would go on and kids would come in from play and uh, enough to eat and then head on out and along about sunset or so, we would find our way back in and I would just hang out and listen to stories, uh, you know, from my great aunt and my grandmother. And I remember across the ravine, her talking about sitting in this little branch of the, well, pretty big branch of an oak tree. Well, I look across and there is the oak tree. And so my sense of place was also place in time. So, the, that tree was like a clock. So when she was uh, um, older than I was, uh, when she was really young, and, and the tree was a certain size, and I look across and I see how big the tree is. And, uh, and so that was to me, I could feel, I could kinesthetically feel how old she was, even though I was only 10. Um, the other thing which is important in this conversation, and I want to bring this in because it's going to loop in with, with uh, maybe some of our conversations around what I'm creating now, is that my sense of the neighborhood was a, there was a continuity, there was a wholeness, there was, I, I knew which uh, neighbors welcomed kids and which didn't, and we were free range, free range, and we, we cruised, you know, and um, and we had other adults as friends and other kids through the woods and across from the other side. And, and it was a coherent, engaged community uh, through all seasons. If you know anything about Minnesota, Minnesotans don't stay inside during the winter. And so um, they're outside and, and we are. And the neighborhood was, um, was a place that I found a kid wouldn't say solace, whatever that word would mean, but found found my place in the world. 
And so that's a, a lot of my background is, is coming from knowing, physically, emotionally knowing what home and place is. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I read that your mother's side of the family were artists. You were really reading. I was. I <laughs> didn't do my homework. I guess so. And your father's side came from engineers or, or scientists. That's right. That engineers. Engineers. Yeah. And what a what an interesting combination because it it only seems fitting that architecture comes out the other end uh, whenever you mix those two together because it is very much art and engineering combined. Did you know from an early age that the built environment was something that you would be gravitating towards? Well, as a kid, I didn't think about, you know, um, what I would be, I was playing. And so I would make forts in the woods and bowers and I'd make pathways and, um, you know, around and I would just, I'd make, I'd be making stuff, you know. And um, along about high school or so, my dad um, uh, subscribed to the architectural record. And so every month we'd have architectural record in the house and I would look at that. And he, he could see where I was at. I was not quite an engineer, but I had a little bit of that in me. And uh, I think it was his, his seeding. He didn't say, well, you need to be such and such. Um, but uh, it was a natural. And so much so that um, I finished high school and went right into architecture school. I was uh, my freshman year, I was still 17. And I was immersed in architecture school. And I went, in, went at it with a passion. And I didn't realize uh, what architecture was. You know, architecture covers not only um, buildings, but um, sociology and psychology and history and structure and art and color. And um, this thing that I, you know, the, what, the term called place and placemaking. And the more I got into it, the more it expanded out. It was not about just drafting a house or a building, not at all. It was far more than that. So the more I got into it, it just expanded and I deepened into it again with a passion. And that was at the University of Minnesota. Yeah, that's right. In 78? <laughs> I started in 72, 72 and I finished at the, toward the end of the decade. And what, what was the prevailing architectural practice at, at that time, whenever you're getting out of school, where did, where did you go from there? And what were well, the let, me, let me describe something that happened in my first, I was, again, I'm still 17. I'm going to describe from the start here. And I want to be careful about taking too much time with this part of the story, but you, you, you help us out here. I, I got us into this mess. So I, you I did. <laughs> you did. Okay. I'll see if I could not be too, too much. Um, it, for the people around Portland, you might know of Tom Bender. Uh, he was involved with the Rain magazine <coughs> back in the late 70s. He was my first teacher uh, at the University of Minnesota. And uh, in the first month, he took us out on a five-day um, encampment. And uh, we uh, created shelter in small teams uh, with, with plastic and rope. And we had a practice for five days of creating an encampment. 
And during that encampment, I'm remembering that he took us into a deep meditation. If you can imagine 70 students lying in a circle with their heads to the center, and he took us into a meditation on the powers of 10. Some of your listeners may know of, of Charles and Ray Ames' powers of 10. Well, that had come out and he led us in that meditation. So if you can imagine lying down, getting us into our bodies, going up um, one foot, just above our bodies, and then 10 feet, and then 100 feet, and asking us to look around and what our perception is and look down at our bodies and see the context of our bodies in the circles, and then 100 feet above, and then 1,000 feet above. And you can see where this is going. And so he took us out describing each level of scale to the understood uh, uh, um, edge of the, the physical universe. And then he brought us back through the powers of 10, back to our bodies again and in our bodies. And here we were coming from the vast stellar space back into our bodies. Get this, I'm 17 years old. And I'm, I, li I grew up in a small town in Minnesota, Min Minnesota. Uh, and, uh, and then he takes us in through the powers of 10 to you know an inch and a tenth of an inch and uh, he did this in meters but you can imagine and down into the molecular and the atomic level and the electrons of our of our being of our bodies and then brought us back out again uh, through the powers of 10 so here we were to the edges of the universe to the universe inside that that is also you know as vast and brought us back to our bodies. And somehow or another, he had a recording of humpbacked whales. And so here we were inside a, a community of whales expressing their community through sound and gave us a, a physical kinesthetic sense of being part of a coherent community that, that goes back in time and is present to every moment. So that was, that was I wanna to honor Tom and what I was awakened to. And uh, I ended up you know, becoming friends with Tom uh, over the years. And um, sadly, he passed away last month out on the Oregon coast. And um, beautiful life, he seeded the world with so much. Later in that year, we ended up researching uh, what would it be like to live um, uh, self-sufficiently, independently of the grid, take, get off the grid. Uh, and so we did research and found out there wasn't much out there. There was a project in LA that had a little bit of press on it and the whole solar age had not come about yet. And so we, he had the idea that we would design and build an off-the-grid house. And we would use the process to understand what it is to live uh, within our means. And so he found surplus land at the university, uh, probably 30, 20 miles, 30 miles outside of, of the Twin Cities. And uh, we ended up designing and building a house that was uh, active solar, passive solar, it, it, it sheltered from the north winds with a um, uh, earth, uh, um, is, is earth covered, open to the south. It had a Clivus Maltram composting toilet system. 
It had a, uh, a windmill from a local farmer. My dad was an engineer with a, uh, with a brewing company in St. Paul. And he, there was the old Coopers that made these beer vats were still around. And he found at the brewery an old coop, an old hot tub, a, a thing that we made, a beer vat that we made into a hot tub. So we learned that in Japan, they would, um, they would wash with a quart of water and then they would soak in the hot tub. And there was, an, uh, there was a, a greenhouse. This is called the Ouroboros house. Look it up. Okay. This is before the oil embargo. So if you're aware of history, the oil embargo is, is this crisis that happened. And then everybody realized that, oh, oil isn't forever. And oil, it, oil controls the world. So here we were with this house that we had made, that we had been created, that's off the grid, that's an example. And it was catapulted onto the cover of Popular Science in the Smithsonian Magazine. And so this became the guiding image for a lot of the solar age of the 70s. And so all during school, we we're also working very closely with what it is to live sust sustainably in very practical ways. So um, that's part of what happened during school in the 70s for me. And we were so excited, so hopeful about all the possibilities. And, and we could begin to see it and we were building it. We did a, um, uh, an urban version of a re repurposing an old house into a solar house and, and so forth. But What a beautiful story though. And what I find is that we are the sum of our experiences. And to have experiences that, it, that shape us to our foundation like that, especially with the exercise of going from the self to the cosmos and then back down to the molecular level, that showing us that we're all interconnected and, and then tying that into major political events, into how we're living and how we're using our resources is so uh, telling and still quite relevant today, even though we're we're sitting here 40, 45 years later um, outside of architectural school. And, th and this is why I wanted to dig into it is I, because you are a creator, having people understand the frame of reference of how the genesis to, to your ideas and to how those ideas have taken shape on, on our landscapes that will be here for many more decades to come is I, I think very important to, to give context. And so I, we, we are going from Minnesota and, and you don't live there anymore, spoiler alert for everybody listening, uh, but you did end up outside of Seattle and on Whigby Island. Uh, that is a challenging name for me, but I actually have a friend that lives there and I've seen your projects there. And I, I do have to, to ask, how on earth did a, a, a young guy from, from northern Minnesota end up in the Puget Sound where that would be the last place that I would ever imagine an aspiring architect would go and pursue a career? Well, huh. You're, you've, you've got some good questions and um, I didn't expect we'd, we'd be heading here, but okay. We'll follow it. Uh, if I were a, a, I graduated from architecture school and um, uh, if, if I were pursuing a career, it would be 
in Minneapolis, in New York, in San Francisco, in Portland. Um, I was pursuing a life. Um, I was, um, it's a whole part of a story and I, I hesitate because we could take a whole hour uh, with this one. But um, when I, oh boy, you're pushing on some buttons here. <laughs> um, I was partway through school and um, as I said, everything was expanding. Um, and I took a year and a half off. And um, uh, I went off and I uh, lived in Europe. I worked with an architect in Europe. I traveled 1500 miles all my, by myself around Europe, uh, just soaking it in and taking it in. And I felt, oh my God, I, I don't know if I can get back to school. Um, uh, because what I was experiencing in Europe uh, were places that had so much life, so much depth and history, and there were no architects for the, so many of these places. And I went, how is that? How do they create such beauty and out, of, out of materials that are there in communities that have um, uh, woven themselves for hundreds of years? What we think of history in America is, no, it's not at all. History there is measured in hundreds and even thousands of years. And so I came back with a lot of big questions and searching. And I thought, well, I, I went out to San Francisco and thinking, well, maybe I will uh, uh, change schools, change environments, shift myself around. I had two years left. And I ended up at Berkeley and uh, found that uh, most of the credits that I gotten at the university would not transfer and I'd have to repeat a year or two years. And I'm like, oh no, I don't need to extend this more than I am. I gotta get this done. And, but the librarian said, you know, in chatting with you, you might wanna check out what uh, this fellow named Christopher Alexander is working on. And so they guided me to, uh, to a room and the manuscripts, um, uh, and the workbooks and the files for a pattern language and a timeless way of building were being worked on right then. And I spent a couple of afternoons in there and I felt my whole body just tingling. I was so excited in a deep way that I could hardly even contain myself because my approach to design is um, play. I, I'd go for just mucking around until magic happens. Uh, it's intuitive, it's, uh, it's playful. What Chris Alexander did was to provide a structure. So he said at the heart of the process is, is feeling, but there's also a structure to places that have uh, depth, that have wholeness, that have integrity, that have life itself. And I could feel that life. And, he, and I followed then the guidance of, of a pattern language. Um, what I ended up doing was is copying as many sheets as I could, stuffed them into my backpack and said, okay, I'm going back to the University of Minnesota. And that became the, the pattern language and the processes from the timeless way of building uh, became my filter through which I would do all of my projects in school and my writing in school. And none of the professors knew thing about it. 
And so I was practicing my own, you know, work, you know, finishing. And um, so that was how I was introduced. And if any readers are just learning about uh, Christopher Alexander, uh, maybe this is the takeaway from this uh, conversation. Find Christopher Alexander, uh, look at A Pattern Language, A Timeless Way of Building, and a slew of other books. The Nature of Order is his major series. Um, just bookmark that and follow up. So, oh boy. I had continued, I, I, my last semester, I had um, worked uh, doing my thesis on um, what housing is and what community is, what house is that is not just a house as for a static uh, household, that we are people that span a life. And so we are students, we are young people getting out into the world. Maybe we are, if we follow the normal path, conventional path, we are a couple and there are children, you've got young children and middle school children and high school children. At some point you're an empty nester and then you move into your elder years. Well, do we have to move every time we, we um, change uh, our life moment? And so I began to think about how houses can morph um, and flex uh, as, we, as we grow, as we change. Uh, and that's through uh, a main house and an accessory which maybe has an intermediate uh, room. And so at one point, the main house might have three bedrooms. And then as an empty nester, kids leave, that second bedroom might then team up with the backyard or the, the next door accessory, which would be uh, a studio, and it becomes a one bedroom. Or maybe it becomes uh, an office with a three bedroom house. And so the whole house morphs depending upon the needs. And the rental from the accessory then helps pay for the mortgage. So I was working on this during my thesis and also trying to find out, well, what is community? What, what does that mean? What's a neighborhood? What are, what are uh, a neighborhood is made of neighbors? Not just neighborhood as a general proximity thing, but, but, but places with nearby neighbors. And so I was exploring that back in the 70s. Um, I also um, uh, began, I came across contact improvisation. Um, if you know anything about that, again, for people, look it up. Uh, it was a little thing on a street corner pole and said contact improv and I went, oh, boy, I could use contact. I'm too much in my head and improvisation. Um, I need a little more because uh, things are pretty structured and planned and I need a little bit of that. So that brought me back into my body and awakened me to uh, a kinesthetic sense of what um, truth feels like in my body when I am present, when I'm in the moment, when I'm in relationship to another. And I, um, uh, I felt as I was in relationship, it's what you, contact improv is following the point of contact that two people share. So if you can imagine two people sharing touch of the fingertips and each person is listening and is moving in relationship to the impulses of that touch. It's not planned, it's not one-sided, it is, it, is, it is amazing. This is like, it just happens. What I found is that when I, when I became present to that point of touch, I could feel 
whether my family patterns, the cultural patterns of sexuality, of course you're touching, of my um, idea of who I am, my family's idea of what I should be and how I should live and act. I could feel that and I could feel that that was stopping me from being present in the touch. And I could also through the touch feel into the next person. And I could feel whether they have met me in the moment or whether they are bringing their embedded embodied um, patterns in their physical body, emotional body forward. And I could find when we could then release those patterns and actually show up fully. That was so enlivening. It was not about a degree. It was not about what it looks like. It was not about career, nothing at all. And so um, I, I just went, oh my God, I need more of this. And I found out that there was a, um, a six week intensive in San Francisco where I just was and uh, the year before. And it was six weeks, 65 people from around the world, seven days a week, 15 hours a day, and I signed up for it. Well, I was finishing school, I didn't have money. Well, during that same time, I had entered a competition to design an off-the-grid house in Minnesota. Well, I'd done that earlier, but I had done another version of it. And I ended up being one of the winners and won $1,000. And in 1978, that was a lot of money. And so here I was, I had my money to, to do this. I had presented my thesis. And then I, three days later, I was in San Francisco among 65 dancers from around the world. I was not a dancer, but there I was. And, and it opened me up um, uh, to that world. And, and I just entered it with a passion and dropped really out of any career path, any architecture, anything at all. And I ended up staying there and living in San Francisco um, for a time. And during this time was um, uh, the movement, the dance, um, the processes of all of this awakened uh, my dreams, awakened my, um, my uh, perceptions, my inner experience. Um, I be my whole sense of, of being a body in the world just, just came alive. Oh my God. Oh my God. It's like this was not about following a career path that, you know, my parents or my relatives said, oh, now you're an architect. Now you need to follow da, 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 da. I could not say no to following it. And I, as, as it began to open up into an inner, inner experience, I went, I've got to find somebody who can help me through this because this is, this is blowing my circuits. And I tried to find a teacher and I couldn't. And I ended up going back to St. Paul and Minneapolis and um, tried to find my ground again because I was just really lifting off, um, getting rather in my body, but, but untethered. And it was good to be back home. And uh, I found my first job with a local architect and I tried to find a teacher and I couldn't, and I ended up teaching myself. And I began to teach contact improvisation, but I did it outside. And I did it uh, on a point uh, in a park, surrounded on three sides by water, Lake of the Isles in Minneapolis. 
and I would have the class twice a week and I would finish the class uh, at sunset. So wherever the, whenever the class was during that summer, the end of the class would be the sun setting over the water in the west. And so we began to find ourselves in this improvisational score that would find us coming into a coherent closure with the people in the class with the sun setting. And it was profound. And that ended up uh, tying me into coming back into land and place and body and experience of place and being part of community. I'm remembering the whales from coming out of this, this meditation. And here we were, we were as humpbacked whales coming together in coherence. And so I had a deep, deep experience of community uh, in that way, not as a mental idea, but as a embodied idea. And um, I'm gonna bring us to Whidbey Island, see, see if I can do this in just a minute or two. Uh, see what you got me into? I, I'm on the edge of my seat right now though. That's, that's the fun part about this. So um, through uh, serendipity, I uh, ended up finding a teacher in New Mexico uh, who was uh, discovering what living ceremony was for, the, for people of our time and uh, people not of color but inspired by what it means to be indigenous to a place, what it means to be native to a place. And so we, um, uh, I, I went out to New Mexico and we would create uh, ceremonial rituals to um, around the summer solstice and, and other things way in the wilderness for uh, uh, 10 days, two weeks, three weeks, um, do this for two or three years. And I met my wife there. And we would create these rituals of place and of time and of community. And my wife and I met and we, we knew each other in the depth of this liminal space, not in physical uh, chatter space uh, at a bar, you know, in town somewhere. And we knew each other and there was a depth of, of knowing. And later we said, would it even be possible to to live out in our lives together with a knowledge, with a presence, with a sense of what we are experiencing in this deep ceremonial space. And so that was um, about 1980 and uh, 81, and we have not, we're, we're, we're there. So I just, I also wanna honor her in this process. Uh, how I got to Whidbey Island is that I was helping my teacher with uh, um, uh, work with doing ceremonial uh, gatherings with wherever people are at in their communities, transforming a suburban house into a temple uh, for a three-day uh, ceremonial event. And I was um, out, up on the Fraser River north of Vancouver. And, um, and during that time, different people said, oh, you need to know about, oh, I'm gonna shorten this up. Anyway, I was led to Whidbey Island through a bunch of, of serendipitous happenings uh, to the Chinook Learning Center, which became the Whidbey Institute. And when Deborah and I were married, I said, I'd like to go back to this place up on an island. And there are, I, we, we wanted to live day to day in a place where we could meet each other, walking on the street, at the post office, in the grocery store, 
um, and have a sense of a depth of connection. Community. Mm -hmm. Again, community. And I said, I think there's something there. And we, we came here then and we found it for ourselves. It was not about pursuing a career. It was pursuing um, what it means to be alive in this time. And what happened after arriving is that people said, could you help me, you know, making a house? And I worked at the Whidbey Institute, the Chinook, the Whidbey Institute, helping planning conference spaces and houses. And we were working with ceremonial events here. And I began to work with uh, designing the Waldorf School and designing some absolutely wonderful houses. And during those years, I was working with how do we design houses that have uh, this life that I could feel uh, that was through a process that I was working with, with Chris, Al Chris Alexander. And so it's not about a house as an image that you see in a magazine. It's not about impression or being impressed. It's about what does it mean to have a house that fits your life um, and that you can feel safe and at home and come alive within, in place. And so that was my work for 15 years. Um, and the houses were right-sized. They, they weren't below a certain square footage or above a certain, it was not about square footage, it was about fit. And so um, that was that whole first period of my work here uh, as an architect. And um, when times were tough, we, we were living very frugally. And uh, I just tightened my belt a bit. We had enough. And you know what it is to live knowing that there's always enough. Um, I, will, I will say going back to a point that you had made earlier, it's not about the picture. You know, the one thing that, that I've been impressed with, with your work is looking at pictures and feeling this primordial longing for being in that space. And because it, it radiates nourishment and and intentionality. And I get all that from a very two-dimensional thing. And, and so visiting your communities has been a, a sense of, of that coming alive, especially whenever you go from a book that you've written uh, where it showcases your work into now we're, we're in this space and, and getting to hear the background of this, of, of how community really infused into that uh, it, I, I believe I, I'm getting the dates right, but it was either 92 or 96 that you and a partner uh, created your first pocket neighborhood. And is that right? Yeah, in the mid-1990s uh, on Whidbey Island, um, there was uh, a lot of uh, influx from people from California and from the city moving uh, outside of California and outside the city and the prices were jumping and the zoning that we had here is typical for zoning of communities in the 70s and 80s and 90s basically uh, uh, street garage fronted houses on wide streets um, the zoning basically made it easy for that it was monoculture family-sized houses for Ozzie and Harriet and their kids the fact is that that was in our community 25, 23% of households. And so people were moving and yet they, it, the, the, the um, 
household mix and the community mix was uh, being pushed towards suburban um, uh, expression. And uh, we felt that this is not, um, we needed to have a much more, um, more options, we, more options. So there was uh, the Pine Street Cottages in Seattle uh, happened uh, two or three, several years before that basically worker cottages from about 1917 and 18, which were renovated rather than destroyed, uh, 400 square foot houses around a shared backyard. And, uh, and, and it got national publicity and everybody thought, oh my God, this is so cool. Let's do this. It's against the law. It's illegal. You gotta have houses that have you know, street fronts and addresses that are straight. You can't have houses that are not on the street. You've got to have normal sized houses, a 400 square foot house. Come on, you got to be kidding. And parking that is not attached. Um, and so um, the people in Seattle uh, tried to rewrite the zoning codes and none of the neighborhoods would say, yeah, we want this. There's a lot of nimbyism, not in my backyard. And so we uh, here, we live in a town of a thousand people um, fairly progressive. Um, we began to envision and ended up passing what was probably the first contemporary cottage housing code in the country. And uh, that said, okay, we're going to give incentives to develop infill on existing lots rather than new external um, uh, lots, sprawl. Uh, if uh, we're going to do twice the density in any residential zone, two times the number of houses. If the houses are limited in size, surrounding a shared garden, and the parking is shielded from neighbors uh, in the street. And so uh, not long after that, I was giving a talk on how to design smarter, better, smaller houses uh, for the Northwest Eco Building Guild. And uh, Jim Souls, who is a developer uh, from Seattle, happened to be there. And uh, he came up to me afterwards and he said, gosh, I love your sense of how to make smaller houses live large. Uh, love it. And uh, you are living in Langley on Whidbey Island. And it has what I think is the first of this kind of code in the country. Can I come out? We need to talk. We ended up leaving that talk, becoming partners. And uh, uh, I had never imagined this, but I, we together, we borrowed more zeros than I'd ever seen before. Uh, we, we, we bought four lots and um, we designed what uh, those lots would typically have if they were built out by code. And then we said, well, what would uh, cottage housing be? We designed that and we not only got that through um, the design review board and the planning board and all the neighborhood work of the city, but we presented it to our local bank. And we said, okay, we want to borrow all this money for us to do this. There are no comparables. You're a realtor, you know this. There are no comparables. And right. yet somehow what we had was, okay, well, you could do four houses, standard size houses, and what you've got on the line will pay for itself. I mean, it's, it's fine, we'll bank on that, but you're gonna do that. They loved the new design and they, they loaned us the money. Um, and so we built out uh, eight houses that were less than a thousand square feet with big porches facing the shared commons with a little common house, a workshop. And we did it all with no pre-sales. 
because we were pushing so many edges. We didn't want people saying, well, I have to have a garage or I have to have, you know, uh, uh, this size bathroom or I have to have a kitchen with this and this. We, we trusted our hunches and we made steps and we used the money that we were borrowing wisely as wisely as we could. And then we followed a process that was not unlike what I was learning through um, Chris Alexander's work and the unfolding of a place that, that has wholeness and life. And so in it, uh, I, uh, the whole, the, the, the genesis of the, of the design came about in a f almost a flash. Now this is based on years and you know, almost at that point, going back to my university times, maybe 20 years of thinking and experience and felt. And I, I, I sat down and the whole design came into being and it wasn't like, oh, it's out of nowhere because it was out of experience. And I could name all of the key uh, patterns that was, I was bringing into place. The transition from uh, the street to the, uh, to the heart of the community, uh, a commons at the heart, uh, clusters, small clusters, so they're uh, neighborly, uh, room-sized porches around shared space, um, and in between, in an extension of the interior, uh, nesting houses, so that when you open your window in the morning, you're not looking at the next person looking at you, so nested houses, um, and uh, storage, and parking, and all of these things came into place. We built it, and then we put it up for sale, and it sold within two or three months. And people were just going, huh? How, what is this? And then the media found out about it. And it was, it was uh, viral at that time. This was probably 1997 or so when it finally came out, maybe 98, I don't know. And, uh, and it was picked up in 200 newspapers around the country and Metropolitan Home, uh, for those of us in the West will know about Sunset Magazine. It was the best new neighborhood of the West. And they said uh, they published it again later that year. And then the National AIA, American Institute of Architects, uh, heard about it and they said, could you um, put this in for an award? Well, it won the award. And then Sunset Magazine published that again. And it was in, uh, I don't know, the New York Times, and it was in um, Metropolitan Home and Metropolis and on and on and on. And I realized that we had not only met a need in our local community, but we had tapped into a socket that had juice that was around the country. This was a latent uh, electric wire that was just ready to be tapped and not just by us, but by, by all over. And I'm still seeing that. In fact, I'm seeing that more. And what is that, what's that energy? What, did, what do you think it's resonating in, in people? I think we're shifting from houses as things and as um, you know, having the right address to um, experience of living in relationship. What matters more for many people is what is the quality of our relationship? Uh, and so the homes that wrap us, that surround us, that support us are not about homes that, that show off. They're about homes that have just enough. Um, they're right-sized. And we are not only in relationship to the others in our household, and maybe we live alone, uh, but we, there's a value 
to living in an authentic relationship with uh, people who we can share a day-to-day -day experience nearby. So there's friendships and those can be, you know, within the wider city and town. There's neighborships. And these are the people who you see in their pajamas. They're not your best friends. They might be, but they may not be. So what is the environment that supports neighborships? And I think that it has to do with um, small groups. When I, when I was writing my book, Pocket Neighborhoods, uh, toward the end of the book, I went, duh, this is so simple. Um, in small groups, conversation is spontaneous. We cannot help it. We, are, we, we chat, we tell stories, we reminisce, we argue, we banter. In large groups, somebody's got to organize us or else it's just chaotic. And we as humans, uh, we live in towns and cities and we have the, this amazing um, ability to organize with large groups. But where our lives are lived moment by moment, day to day is, is in proximity of the body and the house that we're here. And much of the physical environments of the last 60, 80 years have been built and developed on environments. I'm talking about homes and subdivisions and developments have been built with a scale of economy and efficiency and affordability. And it's about numbers. And pocket neighborhoods are built on a foundation of the scale of sociability. Uh, so think about if you're having a, um, a garden party and uh, you're not gonna have 60, 80, 100 people just um, all together talking and across talk. They're naturally going to coalesce in small groups. These are, this is the scale of sociability. At a long dinner table, you're gonna be chatting with the two or three uh, on one side across the table and one to either to the other side. Um, these, this is the scale of sociability. And so on a block, you might have nearby neighbors at one end of the block or across backyards. Those are gonna be nearby neighbors. That's what I would call a pocket neighborhood. Neighborhood is difficult as a term because it, it signals neighborhood. Well, a neighborhood is is um, uh, much larger, it might be two or 300 houses, and there'd be landmarks in the neighborhood, the red house down in the corner. Um, uh, you're not gonna know all your neighbors, but you will be on a one-to-one -one relationship, face-to-face, first-name basis with your next-door neighbors. This is your pocket neighborhood. And so the, the idea of pocket neighborhoods are, is based on that. And all the work that we've done through these years, that is the, the foundation of it. And I think the attraction to it is that people are longing for to be home, to have real authentic community, to have place. And especially in a world that is so frayed and afraid, um, uh, if, if we can be home, then we can find ourselves and find whatever is our native gift to our families and to the world. If we're not home, we are going to be pulled in in depression, or are we going to be lashing out in aggression or um, an overexcited ego um, because they're afraid to, they, they haven't found their home. So a lot of what I'm trying to do in, in creating the pocket neighborhoods is to create environments that help people come home.
One of the, the interesting things about experiencing these neighborhoods is that it goes from public to semi-public to private as you get into the homes. And even from, if you are entering into the, the pocket neighborhoods through a car, you're walking through the, the shared green space. And, and what is very different from the normal, the, I don't want to say normal, the conventional fabric of our larger neighborhoods is that there is a dearth of semi-public spaces. It's now confined to the sidewalk into our street parking. And, and we're recording this during a time of, of a pandemic that is going on and is, is forcing us to be on lockdown. And we're seeing more social interaction on, on the sidewalk in a place that is very confined, even if we're, especially with six feet of, of separation, uh, but your neighborhoods have that design intentionality into it where it's going to be happening every day. And, and I think unknowingly people are wonderfully startled over semi-public, semi-private spatial interactions. And at least that's what, that what really stands out to me. And especially with uh, hearing your talks on the, the relevance and the importance of, of a porch. And I think back to your childhood of you grew up with a porch and playing music on a porch. And I don't know if that was a intentional uh, bringing up of, of that childhood memory into your work, but I would imagine that it had to have affected it in some way because I grew up in the South where porch living was necessary from heating and cool or from a cooling standpoint, uh, but it was very social in that aspect. And, and that's what I think people really love about those communities that you've built. And you've, you've, how many pocket neighborhoods would you say that you've either designed or developed now? I've lost count. Um, uh, in terms of being a co-developer, a partner in development, uh, there have been seven. So, you know, and two hands. Uh, in terms of designing, for other developers and property owners, uh, I, uh, yeah, 150, 180, I don't know, maybe more. With these developments. And these are, and these are everything from uh, little clusters of four or five or eight to um, 300 acres that would be like villages um, or, or, or new, new, new villages, new neighborhoods, wider neighborhoods. And the patterns that go into the wider neighborhood pick up into a lot of the new urbanism kind of patterns at that larger scale. That's another part of the conversation. But so what I'm saying, you know, uh, projects and site planning, it, it's uh, a lot at, at a whole wide scale. With these neighborhoods, and this is a self-serving conversation, uh, coming at it from Good. if... Good playing the developer, what do you see sets communities up for success? Or your first example was you built it and people came and people were pretty shocked about that. Yeah. <laughs> I've also seen examples of people banding together and, and then creating more of an intentional community that way. Co-housing. Co-housing, right. And eco-villages. But with with your experience, is there one way that 
has more success than another to, to get these projects off the ground? Uh, there's no one way. Um, in my work, uh, I have tended to work with developers rather than with uh, subgroups of, of um, potential um, owners like in co-housing. I really, really honor co-housing and what they've done and, and their practices. I think it's just great. A lot of my work is working with a developer and bringing them along. Um, I, the first thing I do is to try to establish a basis of what are the core essential patterns that might go into community. And uh, you can look at them on our website, uh, pocket-neighborhoods.net. And in the bar, you'll see uh, design patterns, I think it is. And it's looking at the, um, uh, at the, the key patterns. And I just wanna say here that, that uh, privacy uh, is, is a major part of what goes into um, establishing community. Layers of personal space, nested houses, porches that have enclosure yet openness, uh, active living spaces forward toward the shared space. Uh, intermediate spaces off the street uh, to a shared commons. These are uh, ways in which we are establishing personal space and privacy. And so you could think, oh yeah, great, community, community, community. No, we, we need clothing. We need to live with houses that have edges. Um, we need to have boundaries before we can open up together. And so but if we pay attention to uh, uh, personal space, then we're going to get community right. So that's the first thing that I try to establish with um, whoever I'm working with. And then uh, here's another piece that, um, that I want to bring in here. Uh, and these are, uh, I'm taking lessons from uh, the co-housing world. Uh, I will uh, need to say that not all of our communities have ended up to be um, healthy, engaged communities. I'm dumbfounded. I'm thinking, oh, I bring all these great patterns together uh, and it's beautiful. And you've got sometimes people in a small community where you've got a, a neat Nick who wants everything in its place and who thinks of the shared commons as uh, private rather than semi-public. And then you've got somebody who might have a couple kids and they're out or maybe a dog and you can't, you can't try to keep everything neat, Nick. And they're into um, community and having these, uh, these potlucks and these interactions. And maybe the first person bought the house because it's the cutest little smidgen of a house, little cottage, and they're coming out from the city and this is their weekend house. And they sit on the porch and it's the good life and they read their New York Times. And meanwhile, the garden needs weeding, the, um, the other things need to have happen and they don't wanna to touch it. They're to, they've got enough money, they'll just throw money at it. And meanwhile, um, the retired librarian on the other side of the commons, um, she loves gardening and she values friends and community and she doesn't have any extra money. And so you've got this, this just complete um, mismatch and then that leads to these, um, these sort of um, quiet grievances, which, oh, oh God, I thought we had left that. No, we didn't. 
And so once neighbors have moved in, how do you, how, how do you get along? And so I realized that, that as an architect and a developer and uh, everybody involved, the realtors, the bankers, the builders, the contractors, that we're creating the hardware. But I'm realizing that it is more important perhaps to think about um, the, um, the operating system, the software and the apps. What are the tools by which decisions are made, big and small? Differences will come up. Noise, dogs, uh, different habits and patterns, picking up, not picking up. How do you engage those differences? How do we listen with respect, uh, with allowing the introverts to have a, an expression that has equal presence and weight as an extrovert? How do we not have typical, um, uh, our current cultural sense of power over and competition and um, this, you know, the strongest win to having a sense of having a place where there's a place for everyone. Um, these are the, the soft, unmeasurable things that actually have tools. And when I'm working with a developer, I say, put um, a line item in your budget for a community's facilitator who is skilled in this, who can help guide what this community might be, that can help with marketing, can help the realtors, can help people find their fit. This isn't for everyone, but for the people that it is, how do we help them find their fit? And then once they begin to come together, what is the culture of community? How do you run meetings that, that you end up feeling wonderful afterwards, rather than, oh God, oh, another meeting. Um, how do you have life happening? Um, the potlucks and the barbecues and the um, movie nights and the, just things that happen. And so that's the, the apps side or the software side of things. And so um, here I am, I'm an architect, I'm involved in buildings, but I wanna say that what's most important is the life of the people within the buildings. You know, I've got my, my, my dad coming through me as an engineer, and I've got my mom coming through me as an artist and a humanist. And, and I want to say, for me, from my vantage, it, is, it, it requires both. If we don't have an environment that supports us, then it's thwarting us. We're not, you know, our, the bottom line is not, oh, you've got to live in a perfect environment. No. The bottom line is you are present to yourself and to others around you and you find meaning and belonging. And if you've got an environment that supports you, you're more likely to find that. And when you find that, you can offer your own gift out into the world. And if you can't, you're gonna struggle. Ross, you've, you've been at this long enough with, with these communities to have seen multiple life cycles through them, or at least uh, if we're almost three decades into them, you, you've seen them iterate and adapt. And that's one of the things that really uh, strikes me about architecture is that a building is very much fluid and alive. And it's more pronounced with different tenants and ownerships through that. What are the ways that you've seen pocket neighborhoods shift, especially the older ones now that are they adding on to them? Is it, you know, where, what is that human element that's coming out in the physical landscape uh, for, for the older communities that you've built? 
Well, a lot of the communities have been built to a prescribed uh, limits given by the zoning. And so you can, you can add um, an alcove, a dormer, uh, you know, things like that. But it's difficult given how it's been built out to add another house. Um, I think uh, pocket neighborhoods are one um, building type. Um, I have been a lot, a lot of what I'm known for are pocket neighborhoods. But I think when we take a look at what we need in viable, thriving communities, we need a whole variety of things, the missing middle uh, types, the haul of the varieties of backyard cottages and granny flats and attached units and live aboves. Um, those are ways in which we can bring in an established community at the household and the, um, the backyard fence level. And, and in many ways, it's easy to evolve with that. If you establish a, um, a pocket neighborhood that has been built with a great deal of, of review uh, and planned, unfortunately, um, it's relatively fixed. It's hard to reconfigure um, a lot of that. And so it's really important to get it right to start with. Um, we're seeing a variety of shared houses that are happening and reconfiguring um, uh, bigger suburban houses into multiple suite houses. Uh, um, we're seeing um, um, boarding houses, um, you know, call them by different names. These are all really important um, parts of, of communities that we need to have as we, as we establish places for everyone and have neighborhoods that are walkable. Um, that gets into the, the what is important at a community level scale and walkability is the key factor and mixed uses and uh, places for all ages to walk and find things that are important for them, be it a, a park, a dog park, a workplace, a, a, a shop, a um, restaurant, a cafe, your school, that kind of thing. Walkability is, is central to the sen sense of quality of life. Russ, we're, because we're recording this during the era of coronavirus, I, I'm very curious what your take is on where you think people's demand or craving or taste and preferences, whatever you want to call it, for housing and space. Do you think it's going to change at all towards this, towards more walkable, or do you think we're going to go more isolated and and I, I don't mean to frame it so binary like you can take it in any direction that you want um, I'm just I'm very curious and I think a lot of us are are wondering you know how can a major co global collective experience uh, change what the physical manifestation is going to look like in the future that's a big question it is, it yeah. is. But you're the you're the person to. Well, I'm I'm I've got a a view on it, and every day is a slightly different view as I'm feeling into it. Uh, one of the things that just confounds me is why it's called social distancing. Because in many ways, I'm feeling closer to many people in my life through uh, Zoom calls and phone calls, and uh, it's physical distancing, not social distancing. And I think that the uh, many ways what this is, is a big advertisement for community and how important community is. We are social creatures. We go batty. We, we get stressed out. 
you know, our immune system goes haywire. Uh, you know, we, we, we start going on overload. And, uh, and so this is helping us realize how much we need to be sociable and how much the physical structures of our world separate us. The structures of development, the structures of our cities are dysfunctional for the most part. We're car dominated, car tied, and privacy has been ratcheted up to such a degree that we're, that we're isolated and alone among a sea of houses. What kind of American dream is that? And so we need to rethink what the American dream is. And, and what we've been talking about, I think, is, is, is key for a lot more people than might have first realized it. The, the coronavirus uh, pandemic is pushing us to ask really deep questions, um, to think way bigger. What matters? We've been going along our lives and, and the economy is just roaring along and we're doing the best to kind of keep up with everything and we lead busy lives. Stop in our tracks, not our tracks only, but across the city, not just across the city, but across the state, across the country, across the world. Never before has the entire world stopped. And this is an experience that we share across cultures, across the world, from well-to-do countries to, to really poor countries. What an amazing experience for the first time. These, these are the first few weeks in human history that this has ever happened. Oh my God. And so now that we're in it, and this is uh, moment by moment, day to day, we're asking ourselves, we're, we're being shaken and some people are, have lost their, their ground. They're trying to manage kids and work and um, safety and getting food and, and so forth. And it's stressing people out, let alone if you get this. Um, but it's asking us in these, in these times to say, what matters? What do I really need? What is enough? Um, what is it that I love, that I cherish? Uh, what are my gifts? What's mine that I have to offer? Um, how do we live sustainably and resiliently once we come out of this? Uh, what is a true economy that's a living economy rather than an extractive economy? Um, um, how do we, do we live in these ways in our home economies, in local uh, economies in place, in bioregions? What is a bioregion? What is it to live on a planet? I've been thinking about, about where, where we are. Um, if I were to, to leave this room and I were to walk for one hour, but I could walk vertically, I would have a hard time breathing. That's walk, me walking vertically. That is, that is this film where life happens, where our lives happen. In fact, our lives happen in the first 30 feet. You know, we go up to our third floor. That's, that's our life happening. Uh, somebody said recently that if you can imagine a basketball and you stretch this saran wrap around the basketball, that saran wrap is the full depth of the atmosphere that we can breathe, that we can live in. Maybe not even that. That might be many times more. That's it. Floating in space. Wow. Where are we? How do we live sustainably? 
and it's shaken us to the bones. And I think we're going to reimagine and re-energize the what what this Green New Deal is as we begin to put together the the uh, economy. And and I think that when we find ourselves and anchor what really matters in us, we are each going to source what the gift is that we have to offer. And the gift might be just a listening ear, or it might be something that is really significant at the larger scale. I mean, everything is significant, but there, you might have something, well, like your podcast. You're offering people into intimate conversations, and um, that's a gift. It's amazing. So I can go on, but I, I think that, that this, this is an amazing time um, that, uh, that I think we can, in, in maybe our best ways, find ourselves coming back to ourselves and back to what it means to live in a body on a planet at this time sustainably um, and have it flower in the longer term. I think that's beautiful. And I'm, I'm very pleased to see signs of people actually reacting in, in those ways. And outside of our house, we've converted all of our lawn into edible and native landscaping. Yes. And it, it's spurred so many conversations with neighbors that we had no idea lived in our neighborhood. And we live in a very dense urban neighborhood in Portland, Oregon, where you would think that we see everybody on a regular basis. But I am shocked <laughs> at the literally dozens of people that, that live three doors down that we've never seen, never had a conversation with, and didn't know existed. And it's bringing, bringing people out. And I actually got into uh, somewhat of an argument that a garden is a privilege to have. And when I look at my experiences from around the world, ever, all the poor people had to have a garden. And I started doing more research into lawns in America and why we have them. And uh, I, I'm doing my best to promote victory gardens now, hearkening back to World War One and World War Two, where it was wartime efforts to to show your resiliency by growing food and we we grew 40 percent of our produce during world war ii in our backyards and and that's something that i i do identify in in your projects as well as it's not just the physical buildings but uh it is the natural scapes that are coming through as well and and something that i i very much appreciate and i identify with um and to to really wrap up our conversation that I've really enjoyed. And I think we could we could both go on for a long time here. Yeah, but our listeners won't. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I am curious is uh, if if you were to retire tomorrow, or maybe let me rephrase this. If okay, there, hang on before you ask that question. Just a quick yeah. comment on what you just said. So uh, yes, victory gardens. Maybe we'll end up calling them Corona gardens. <laughs> Um, and then think about planting them like you were doing in your front yard, not just your backyard, and in the median strips in the right-of-way. This is public ground. Well, let's turn that into food production. And when you have a garden in your front yard, and while you're doing it, move your picnic table to your front yard. And, and just take note of the conversations that happen when you begin to inhabit the semi-shared space. A front yard is an intermediate zone that's yours and the passersby, the community. And when you inhabit it, you are going to um, um, allow the seeds of community to take off. 
if you're going to sequester yourself to your backyard and your own little private uh, domain, you have done nothing to enliven the surrounding neighborhood and your life is maybe safe, but we need more than shelter. We need more than safety. We need, we need uh, community and we need love. And that your, your definition of pocket neighborhoods, I've read uh, in places that it's not just this is a, a little cluster of houses, that it can be a community garden or a public alleyway that people have taken over. And I actually saw that yesterday, that an alleyway behind people's houses. It had six different little tables set up with six different neighborhood houses having dinner at the same time with their kids kind of playing in each yard. And we're still respecting the boundaries of, of what the CDC is saying, but it's bringing community together like never before. We, so. don't, we don't need to be developers to have this. Uh, you can create community wherever you are. You know, take out a, a, a fence to a neighbor or pull your fence back and create a shared ground, create a community garden, uh, you know, bring uh, picnic tables back to the, to the alley and pull the alley you know, the, the, the boundary with the alley back a little bit, inhabit it, you know, create a, a, a room-sized porch if you've got a little project uh, in mind or a, um, a backyard um, cottage that really engages the alley. Um, plant corn, you know, in the, in the strip just next to the sidewalk. So these are, you know, creating community where we live. And I, I think what, what you're talking about that everybody's waking up to is that to thrive out of these times, we're going to need radical imagination because that's what it's requiring. And you've been keyed into that for a long time now. Uh, but I think for the, the majority of folks, that's what, what we're going to have to call it. Russ, okay. this is probably the, the highlight of, of my month. And I'm, if it took a pandemic to, to get to this conversation, then I, you know, it, it's definitely uh, the highlight of, of, my my week and like I said this has been years in the making I've wanted to have this conversation with you because I've I've been deeply influenced by your work and and so appreciate the work that you've done and um, and I hope that we can have more discussions in the future I'm surprised with where this I, I think my mic came out a little bit I'm surprised with where this uh, conversation is uh, where we've gone um, but I'm I'm really happy for it this has been really really fun yeah, and I want everybody to, to know for the listeners, uh, check out Ross's book, Pocket Neighborhoods. It's a beautiful book. Uh, it is available by, by Amazon. You don't have to go to a bookstore to buy it right now. And, and it truly will be a, a great read if you are at home and, and looking for new stimulus, uh, stimulation. And is there any other resources, websites that people can go to to, to find out more about your work? Uh, well, rosschapin.com uh, has many of the projects. Um, the pocket-neighborhoods.net, an awkward thing, but that one. Um, I'm um, uh, relatively on Facebook. Uh, look up Ross Chapin Architects and you'll find it there. Uh, I'm posting quite a few things related to these topics. Um, the, let's see that. I have a, um, a website, a sub website that we're about to launch into its own website um, called goodfitplans.com. Um, 
and um, it's not launched yet. Actually, I probably shouldn't have said that because <laughs> it's not ready yet. But if you go onto our website and you'll see uh, about a hundred plans that are uh, from everything from 200 square feet to maybe 1800 square feet of plans that uh, are some of our best that we offer out into the world. So those are places where you can find more and, uh, and come back to Neil's site and uh, you'll get some great conversations, uh, both archived as well as in the future. So I'm sure listen in here. Well, thanks so much, Ross. I really appreciate it. And, and good luck weathering, weathering the storm. Thank you. You too.